When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's an eternal question surrounding all relationships. How far would you go for the one you love? Well, if your answer doesn't include death, reanimation, or cannibalism, you might be falling a little short of 1993 standards. But there's no need for a zombie cookout here because we're here to tell you that my boyfriend's back is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, the early 90s were a fun and weird time because you could pretty much turn anything into a rom-com, it felt like. And this is definitely the situation that we're dealing with today because today we are talking about 1993's My Boyfriend's Back. And here, returning to the show to go down this road, Philip from the Adapted to Screen podcast is back. Philip, welcome back to the show. How you doing, man? Uh, Jason, thank you very much for having me back. It's an absolute privilege and I have been very well. How about yourself? I am doing so good. Now, in past episodes when you've been on here, um, it's... You've kind of gone down the horror road, but now we're, we're we're dealing with a comedy here. So what is it about this film that made you want to throw it out there? Uh, well, it's still within the horrid, uh, the, the horrid genre, uh, Jason. I think you'll agree. Uh, we have uh, an element of uh, zombieism and cannibalism. Um, but actually, it's my favorite film of all time. I think it's uh, I think it's extremely well written. Uh, I think it's got a fantastic cast. Uh, extremely well acted and not enough people know the film uh, and it deserves more attention. So I thought, why not discuss it? Because surely it's got a bad writing because people would just dismiss it. But it's uh, actually, it's a very, very good film. And there's the funny thing too. Like you have said that this is your favorite film and yet it qualifies for this show. So, I mean, (laughs) do you feel slated by that? Uh, no, because I always, you know what I feel slighted by? I feel slighted by the things that I like that aren't very well known. And then they get picked up by like bigger channels. And then everyone, oh, have you seen that? So I knew that. I was watching that seven years ago when nobody cared. And now everyone cares and, it, and it's no longer mine. You know what I mean? So I, I feel a sense of ownership over the film, even though I have nothing to do with the film being made or produced or acted in whatsoever. <laughs> but uh, I feel that it's kind of my film. I always, um, whenever we have people over, or I used to do like movie nights with my friends and stuff, that always made people watch this. And I remember one of my friends going, well, that's an hour and a half, I'm never getting back. But he just didn't understand the film. So, so this to you is kind of like Repo the Genic Opera for, my, for Carrie and I in that the movie itself is the litmus test for how well you're going to get along with somebody. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, That's very true. I had a friend who, um, who uh, told me to go and watch Hobo with a shotgun 
and I watched it. I was like, oh, we could be friends now. I understand. I understand you very well. <laughs> see, see that that's the that's what should happen now. Like you think about like you know dating profiles and all that. Rather than put down you know you know likes long walks on the beach, literally just put a picture of your favorite film up there. And if someone gets it, they'll get you. That may be the most. No perfect way to find you know the the people out there in your life that you want to stay in your life uh no actually let's let's push that a little bit further jason uh i reckon that you're quite good with technical stuff why don't we set up a dating app right but the dating app has to be like the profile of your favorite film and the for the person to uh, for the person to contact you if they like the look of your picture then they have to at least answer three questions based on the film I kind of like that. And then you can get together because then they've gone out and watched the film. They put effort in before they've met you. Or one of those things where it's like, watch the film and then come back and tell me which character in the film you are. And if you pick this person, then we, we're, we're good. We're okay. I think I think you'll have a lot of thirsty men picking basic <laughs> instinct and expecting them to be Sharon Stone. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just, just, just no. <laughs> but the one who picks Gene Triple Horn, you keep them. You keep them. <gasps> oh, good old Gene Triple Horn, I crikey. <laughs> All right. So before we go down too weirder road, we're about to go down an even weirder road with my boyfriend's back. But before we do, before we do, it is time to take this film and trailerize it. In one small American town, one man is about to shoot his shot to get the girl of his dreams to go with him to prom night. Oh wait, I read that wrong. In one small American town, one man is about to get shot so he can get the girl of his dreams to go with him to prom night. Not a great plan. Enter Johnny Dingle, a lovelorn zombie who's come back from the dead for love. Luckily for him, he's grown up in the most oblivious and yet still accepting town in America. Seriously, is no one freaked out by the dead guy randomly walking around? Has no one seen a zombie film? I mean, there was a zombie movie playing at the theater with an actual zombie in the room at the time. This is why serial killers have a high kill count in slasher films because movie characters are idiots. Sit back and grab someone to nibble for this Zomcom. My boyfriend's back. We're to PG-13 for prom guest. <laughs> the amount of work you do uh, on this podcast is, uh, is absolutely phenomenal. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> the funny thing is, how many of these trailers would you actually go to see the movie from if you heard it? Uh, it's, well, I would go and see all of the ones that you do, Jackson, because you do it very <laughs> well. Uh, we've started doing a, a little bit on um, on our um, on our podcast where I just do it. I don't know. Well, I suppose was it, was was Inspector Gadget an American cartoon? I it guess it was. was yeah, it? was it? Yeah. So I do. I do like a bit of a trailer thing, but with the voice of the hooded claw. Um, oh God! Or, 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 or a Doctor Claw, or whatever his name was. But I'll all get I you do next is, time, gadget. Next time. That's that's, <laughs> that's exactly how I sound. Um, but I just do it from the IMDb um, 
I'll just do it from the INDB listings. Um, but because like sometimes if we're doing like, uh, we did breakfast at Tiffany's and uh, my co-host Richie went, that sounds terrifying, Phil. I'd never watch that film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because some of the write-ups, I'm not going to lie, some of the write-ups sit there and go, yeah, this this character seems really stalkery. Um, maybe, maybe oh, Johnny. Talk yeah. about Johnny now. Well, yeah. I mean, in the, in a lot of some of these other films too, it's like the character seems a little stalkery. Maybe not a, a romantic comedy here. But let's talk about who's in this film. The movie stars: Andrew Lowry, Tracy Lind, Danny Zorn, Edward Herman, Mary Beth Hurt, J. O. Sanders, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Paul Dooley. Austin Pendleton, Bob Dishy, and Cloris Leachman. And it is the cinematic debut of Matthew Fox and Matthew McConaughey. So if you're looking for some early work, you found it. However, there is also an almost starring in this one because this film would have been the cinematic debut of one Miss Renee Zellweger, but apparently her scenes were cut. She was actually supposed to be in the, uh, the, the beauty shop, but... That scene got cut. The movie was directed by Bob Balaban, and it's the second movie that he directed. But he has also directed episodes of Tales from the Dark Side and Oz. However, there's an almost directed for this one. Peter Jackson apparently turned down the offer to direct this. And before that, Adam Marcus was originally supposed to direct the film, but apparently the studio didn't want a first-time director doing it. Second-time movie director? Sure, okay, but not a first-time but Adam Marcus would eventually go on to direct Jason Goes to Hell, which is funny because the movie is written by Dean Lowry, who wrote the screenplay for Jason Goes to Hell, as well as two episodes of iZombie. This movie is his first writing credit. However, the movie was almost titled Johnny Zombie. And even while they were filming, this was the working title of the film, Johnny Zombie. Thank God they changed the title. Like, honestly, if this movie was called Johnny Zombie, would you still go see it? Uh, well, I would have. Uh, so the way that I came across this film, I would have watched it anyway. Um, but um, no, it's a very poor title, isn't it? Johnny Zombie is a very poor title indeed. My boy, my boyfriend's back is actually not even relevant to what happened because Johnny wasn't. Uh, wasn't Mrs. Boyfriend anyway. So <laughs> so it's kind of, but you know, but who cares? It's a great film. Right. And the funny thing is, I mean, we all know the song, My Boyfriend's Back. And for you, my dear listeners, I am not going to sing it. So you're welcome. But the funny thing is they used the song in the trailer for the movie, but the song is never used in the movie. So yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, I don't know where they would have put it in the movie. Also, because um, I um, I had a bit of an email exchange with Dean Lowry many, many, many years ago, and uh, he told me that Disney own it, and that goes to show with the end song, uh, which was performed by the Mickey Mouse Club band um, at the time. Uh, that or the incarnation of the Mickey Mouse band then. So it was already Disney-fied uh, when it was being made. So probably they, and again, where would you have put that song? There was nowhere to put it, was there really? Although um, uh, we've just recorded, or we're, we're releasing an episode uh, this weekend of uh, on our podcast uh, about the Wanderers. I don't know if you know the Wanderers or not, Jason. No, it's not ringing a bell. 
Okay, it's a, it was an early not it was a early sixties book uh, about gangs in New York, ch- like children's gang, no teenage gangs, uh, and the film came out in the nineteen seventies. But that had all you know, it had Dion, it had uh, Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, and there was a scene where they were all at a dance, and this was playing, and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Now you mentioned Disney. So it's no surprise that this film had some money behind it. The film had a budget of $12 million, but worldwide only grossed $3.3 million. And when it was released on the August 6th, 1993 weekend, it debuted at number 16 with only $1.4 million. It is obviously the lowest grossing new release that week in you know, in wide release. The biggest grossing film that weekend was the debut of The Fugitive, which earned $23.7 million. Even number two, Rising Sun, in its second week, only made $9 million. The other major release debut that week was The Meteor Man, which only brought in $2.6 million. So no one talked crap about the Marvels anymore. <laughs> My boyfriend's back made $1.4 million in its opening weekend. But the reason why we are here, and not because you love this film, is the critic score. Over at Rotten Tomatoes, this film has an audience score of 45%, of which I'm assuming 44% of that is you. And <laughs> the Tomatometer is a paltry 13%. So when you hear that number, how much do you want to, you know, get some torches and start your own zombie cookout. Well, it's funny because out of all the people that I've always shown it to, there's, there's, there's parts in the film where they'll go, well, that wouldn't happen. Would it? That wouldn't happen. I say the film would never happen. No one's coming back from the bloody dead. Are they? You know what I mean? So you've got to accept it for what it is. It's a little bit like, I don't know. I had a friend once, um, uh, a, a, well, a work colleague, and uh, we was at work. Said, "Oh, what you do yesterday?" When I, oh, I went to watch Aliens versus Predators, I said, "Any good?" He went a bit far fetched, really. Gone well, which bit the alien or the predator? You know what I mean? I mean, come <laughs> on, let's let, let's get our priorities straight. We're not watching a factual movie. We're watching a bit of enjoyment. And what I like about the film, to be perfectly honest, is it's extremely well written. Uh, and um, I know you, you mentioned uh, written by Dean Larry there. He actually uh, wrote and executive produced a lot of Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. And if, if you watch that, if you watch Arrested Development, which actually uh, just out of pure coincidence, I've been re-watching, it's, you can see the writing in that is very, very similar to my boyfriend's back. It's very dry, very witty, very, like people will say things like, oh, it's kind of, the way it's played, it's played very straight. The whole film is played very straight with this one bizarre thing going on. And and once you accept that everyone has accepted this bizarre thing for what it is and they're just going about their daily lives, that's when you can enjoy it and find it incredibly funny. And that's the thing. Like You have to understand that this film is very, you can't even say sarcastic like because it's not sarcastic and it's not, you know, it's not played for like, any kind of Zucker Abrams and Zucker kind of slapstick laughs. It's almost, how do I even put it? Like it's, it, I, there, I have some notes on this one here, but it, it does feel almost like a, uh, an 
alternate reality painting of a time in the past. But that's I'm going to get to that in a little bit here. But let's talk about who's in this film and why they work or don't work. We're going to start, of course, with Adam Lowry, who plays Johnny, the you know titular boyfriend, if you will, or eventual boyfriend. How was he for you in this? Um, I always thought he was. I thought he was more or less perfectly cast because you can't have someone who's too good looking. You can't have someone who's confident because that's not the character. The character is a bit dweeby, a bit not, not nerdy perhaps, you know, but he's low on the social scale. So you've got to, got to put someone within that kind of that realm, that character. You've got to find someone who looks a little bit like that. Um, it's actually quite funny where you mentioned earlier on uh, in this, it, there's, there's three, uh, there's three Oscar winners in this film. There's Matthew McConaughey, Ma- um, Clarice Leishman, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. But he also did a film, I think, just after this, uh, School Ties, with Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and uh, Brendan Fraser. Mm-hmm. So he's uh, so his acting ability is good enough to get him in films with really good with actors who were either really good, who were or who were going to be really good. Um, so no, I thought Andrew Larry was, uh, I think. It was a good choice. Yeah, it was a good choice. As I'm watching this, you know, certain past performances by different actors in different movies continuously come to mind. And of course, the biggest one probably being Jonathan Silverman in Weekend of Bernie's, you know, dealing with another mm-hmm. dead person here. But it does. It feels like that almost 80s kind of character that the likes of a Jonathan Silverman or an Andrew McCarthy would have definitely mm-hmm. played. Um, mm-hmm. This is where I, I have almost a, a setting problem with the film and it has nothing to do with the actors itself so the movie feels like an 80s movie even though it was released in 93 and so it's not that far off of how it feels and it feels like it's set in the 80s or the early early 90s this film i think would have fared better or at least been served better by the critics had it been set in the 50s and because it has that almost you mm-hmm. know you know, the best of times Americana type feel to the town where everyone was happy. It feels like an episode of WandaVision in in essence. I think if you look at, say, for instance, what's it called? Uh, Night of the Creeps, uh, where Night of the Creeps, the first bit was in the 50s and then the second bit was 30 years later in the 80s. You're right there because even though Night of the Creeps was predominantly set in the 80s, it still had that 50s feel because it had the callbacks and it had the beginning that being in the fifties. And you're right, you know, the, like for instance, um, uh, like, like the gingham blouses, just the, the way it all was, all you were missing there was like a driving diner. That's all you were missing really to kind of put it into the, into the fifties. But then would it have been the same? I don't know. Yeah. But just going back on, I, I just going back on your previous point, I think um, if you look at a, uh, a more recent film, which was very bizarre in its in its kind of in its making, but was played kind of straight. Was it called um, uh, "The End of the World" with Seth Green mm, and yes, all, yes, yes. all the famous actors? So when you watch that, it's like, what the hell am I watching? But like, if you if you're in that situation, or if that's what's going on, you can kind of go with it. If you know what I mean, and I think that's it, there's a similarity with that film and when my boyfriend's back he's got you've got this one very strange thing that's happened and everyone is just going along with it like it's very very normal yeah you you had almost that you know you know 
this is the end or the the end is here or whatever they they, they call it the film. It's not the world's end because that's 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 very different. Very different. Um, but you know, you also have um, you know, hints of Back to the Future, the first one, of course, where they go back to the past in the fifties and the whole everything set around prom. But you know, you have a lot of those eighties kind of comedy kind of feels to it, and almost a like a, a little bit of Pleasantville as well. So there's parts of different movies that that prove that the concept works. And once you get into it, because at first I'll admit it took me a little bit to get into, it, but once I, I realized kind of what it was, I'm like, okay, I get it now. I do. I really appreciate it. And I think with Adam Lowry, before he dies it's like okay he's kind of a wishy-washy kind of guy he has no chance with missy whatsoever um but then of course like you know the confidence comes with i guess with being dead i don't know but because the the town is the way it is and everyone accepts by the way spoilers like a mofo if you haven't figured this out by now (laughs) dear listeners um but the film is and prepare to feel old the film is 30 years old now so yikes but still, it's scary. But it still works, which is kind of funny. Um, but the funny thing is, like, with death comes confidence, apparently. And, and you know, as the film goes, Johnny gets better as a character, and I kind of like that. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think what you start off with Johnny, you kind of start. It, it's kind of a blank slate. He's all he th- all he thinks about, it, but he just he's. The film starts, he wants to ask Missy to the prom. That's his main aim. There's nothing else we know about him. We don't know if he's got any hobbies, any likes, any dislikes. He just likes Missy and that's all he wants to do. And he says at the very start, all I've done is fancy Missy my whole life. And so that's all we know. And then obviously, I suppose you're right there. There is some kind of confidence with being dead when he's back because what's the worst that can happen? He's already dead. Right? Exactly. Like, got nothing else to lose here. (laughs) Tracy Lind, who, of course, played Missy and has not acted since 1997. How was she for you? Oh, well, I was uh, was in love with uh, Tracy Lind as a a child. Uh, I first saw her in Class of 1999 when I was about 10, and I just thought she was beautiful. And then later on, I'd saw her in... uh, Fright Night Part Two, and then uh, here she was in this. Now I think, I think she she played the part of the local beautiful girl extremely well, uh, especially when she didn't have any malice. You know what I mean? The, the kind of because you, you you might have that character, you know, who like I say Mean Girls style, uh, but she wasn't. She didn't have malice. She was a very nice person. Um, maybe it's just because I'm in love with Tracy Lind. I'm not quite sure. So maybe I'm biased. Uh, but I thought her character was really good. I thought she was, yeah, I thought she was very good. There wasn't, there wasn't too much development because I don't think there was anything to develop, if you know what I mean. Like, like towards the end when she's going, I'm not going to the prom with Buck. You know, just, she, you know, because she'd already split up with him once and yeah, she might have, he might have been creeping his way back in as you expect the boy to do. But, Clearly, she knew her own mind and she wasn't going to be pushed around by her parents or by book. Yeah. I mean, here's my problem. First of all, good thing is that they didn't go with the trope in that Missy was the head cheerleader and Buck was the quarterback from the football team. So it made sense that they were going to go to prom together. Like, that's kind of tropey and I'm glad they didn't go down that road. Missy was played as a, you know, yes, the pretty girl in the high school and the, the object of Johnny's affection, but... 
you know, she was smart and she was artistic and, you know, she had, you know, more to her than, than just being pretty. The problem, though, is that the whole idea that, you know, he, she only goes for him after she thinks, you know, he, he's like, well, I died for you. Like, oh, it feels kind of guilt trippy in, in a bit of a way. So I don't know if that plays against Johnny or plays against Missy. But I think the thing here, too, is that they use the whole thing as a morality point at the end, you know, to shame everybody else. Missy's good enough as it is. She, she they, don't, they don't need to turn her, her reasoning for being with Johnny into a morality point for everybody else. But maybe, maybe I'm overthinking it. I, I well, first of all, I think you probably are. Um, <laughs> this is not this is not the Pelican Brief. Um, uh, the, the bit where you said about um, uh, when when Johnny says, "I died for you." I'll come back from the dead for you. One of the, just in the background, one of the girls goes, my boyfriend won't even pump gas for me. Yeah, that was um, good. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of, so what you're saying, like, it's not really guilt tripping. It's kind of highlighting the lengths Johnny will go to just to be with her. Even though he kind of caused his own downfall in the first place. But you know, that's a different kettle of fish, isn't it? Yeah. And the, the funny thing is that, it kind of plays on the tropes of just what would you do for your girl? Like, thankfully, they do it in a in a very comedic kind of way, in a very almost parody. It almost does parody the idea of what the fifties relationship was, albeit in Middle America in the eighties. But I think she did very well. Like, I'm I'm surprised she didn't get bigger than she actually was. Well, the uh, the little bit of the backstory there, I think, I mean, and this is just me hypothesising because she did drop off the face of the earth in 1997. Um, but it was at the same time because uh, she was in she was in a relationship with Dodie Fayed. Um, and I don't know if you know who Dodie Fayed is. No, I do. Yeah. So at the time where he died, she disappeared off the face of the planet. But there was a few of the films that she was in that he was producer of. Um, so I think cause she'd done an interview shortly after, um, after his death and spoke about, uh, how he was fairly abusive and stuff like that in certain situations, I'm saying all the time. Um, and I think, I think then she got a bit of backlash from that. Um, cause he, cause she said it after he was dead rather than while he was alive, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, maybe it had something to do with it, perhaps, uh, but maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not behind the scenes. We don't know the things that go on with these people, you know, when they're not on screen. So, I mean, I mean that, that's horrible to hear. Um, I, and I, I just wish that she had come back because she is actually a good comedic actress in this. And the fact that she plays it in that, and again, another character that as the movie goes on and as she finds herself defending Johnny to the town and that that looks at, you know, dead people walking around in the most plain as plain as day kind of way. Um, also, there's a dead person walking around in your town. You might want to freak out a little, but no one does. But that's OK. But I think it adds to it. And much in the same way that, you know, and I'm completely going on a limb here, but much in the same way that X-Men was an allegory for, for racism and discrimination, this film kind of feels that way too a little bit in times, and Missy is the voice of reason for that. Yeah, I think I've always thought that myself. I think if you take Johnny out of the equation and, and will replace Johnny with a black person, 
mm-hmm. as an example, uh, then it might be the exactly the same script, just with, you know, different slurs yeah. <laughs> rather than dead kid. <laughs> but 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 that's the thing. Like the fact that it's a zombie, you can you can take the allegory and treat it in a fun way. And people who don't want to think about it too much, you know, people who aren't podcasters, you know, they'll they'll just enjoy the film for the laughs that it gives. But people who look into it sit there and go, I get it now. And the film is actually, I think, behind the scenes and maybe unintentionally or maybe intentionally, you know, a lot smarter than people give it credit for. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, mean, I know they said you, you could replace it with the black person. You could replace it. I mean, today you'd probably be a ginger person. <laughs> <laughs> the, only gi- <laughs> the only ginger in town. Oh, man, oh, man. And hey, one day Doctor Who's going to be a ginger. You know it's going to happen. One day, <laughs> one day. Well, 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 Catherine Tate's already been in it, so, you know. We, ha- we have ginger representation. It's all good. Oh, and don't forget Karen Gillan. Don't forget Amy Pond. Oh, oh, I would never forget Karen Gillan, ever. <laughs> Danny Zorn, who played Eddie, who was Johnny's best friend in this, um, and almost a snack. How, how was he for you? Well, I think he was probably the only normal character. Like, out of everyone, he was, I mean, maybe Missy, she wasn't, she, Missy was fairly normal, uh, but he was probably the only normal person in the whole film. Whereas everyone was a bit quirky, a bit kooky, a bit nuts. He wasn't, he was the kind of, he was the straight man of the, of, of the whole, even though he didn't, he had his comedy bits, but he was kind of uh, the foil that kept the whole thing going. I think um, he died about 10 years ago, which is uh, a big shame. You know, what's funny as I was watching this and watching his, you know, gradual progression from please don't, please don't eat me to, I think you should eat buck. Um, but his mannerisms in this reminded me, and I don't know if you've seen the film, uh, speaking of Karen Gillan, uh, the movie Duel. Uh, no, I have not. Okay, first of all, great film. But the way that she goes through this film, at least her character goes through this film, in sort of almost a perpetual state of shock and confusion and so much so that you're not exactly sure exactly how to react to the absurdity of everything that's going on in your life that you just sit there and almost blankly and matter-of-factly deal with everything. And that's kind of how Eddie deals with this in that everything is matter-of-fact to him in that, okay, process, he's dead, he's back, he's a zombie, he tried to eat me, I didn't like that, I stepped away, he apologized, we're good again, and Buck's in his way, so you go ahead and you eat, you eat Buck. It's all good. <laughs> um, but in such a plain, matter-of-fact way that, that goes along with everything else in the film, that once once you're in and on the ride, the ride's kind of fun. Yeah, oh, most definitely. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Edward Herman and Mary Beth Hurt, who of course played Johnny's parents in this, um... I personally got a big kick out of Mary Beth Hurt as as Johnny's mom, but how were they as the parents for you? <clears throat> well, they were they were probably they had the they had the best lines. They delivered them the best, and I think they were probably the two shining people in the in the whole film. And when uh, when uh, Johnny, I mean, this is uh, and uh, and this is a tribute to the writing. There was like a three or four minute bit where it was just. Uh, the best jokes that you could probably ever get. So Johnny comes home and his parents initially, what's going on? And his dad goes, you know, Johnny, you know, the doctor and the ambulance driver and the coroner and the embalmer, you know, we all thought you were dead. And he goes, well, I got better, didn't I? And a typical mum response is, there's loads of food left over from the funeral. Are you hungry? (laughs) It's just a typical mum thing to do. And he's like, no, thanks. I'm going to bed. And then he gets up and he, and he sees he's got the bullet holes and he goes downstairs and his mom checks his temperature and goes, Oh, you feel a bit peaky. He's like, yeah, cause I'm dead. <laughs> and she gets on the phone to the doctors and she's like, hello, you know, my son, Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. He died. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, he doesn't feel very well. And but by then he's already gone. And she's like, do you want to speak to him? And he's not there. And you can imagine the receptionist on the other end of the phone going, Oh, poor woman. She's lost her mind. She really has. She's phoning the doctors to check on. You know what I mean? It's without. So that's that's brilliant. That's I think that's brilliant comedy. And then Johnny goes to school, and the teacher's doing the register, and she gets to his name, and she's like, "Oh," and then he just walks in, and he's like, "I'm sorry, I'm late. You wouldn't believe the trouble I had getting here." And she goes, "Yes, I would, and I'm not impressed. One demerit." (laughs) (laughs) It's just that little span of all of those jokes are so good. But um, yeah, uh, the mom, uh, uh, the mom and the dad. So, I mean, you know, she does the mom, obviously just thinking about it now, it's the mom thing. She goes out and gets him food. So she wants him to eat. He tells her that he can't eat 
he can only well I don't even think he tells her that he that 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 he can only eat dead people. I think she must have figured that out for herself because she goes, "Pass me the butter." And he opens the fridge and there's a bloke in there. She's nicked from the morgue. <laughs> well, this, of course, after she tried to serve up Little Chuck, you know, like like, like Big big Chuck's Wasn't that kid. afterwards? Wasn't no, I, that afterwards? No, because because before? the body in the fridge was when um, Missy and her father were there having dinner after, after, the, that's right. after the lunch mob. Yeah. Right that's, now. That's correct. People who have never seen this film and they're tuning into this conversation halfway through going, <laughs> what the f- are they talking about <laughs> what the hell kind of movie is this his body's in the fridge there's little kids on platters there's a there's a lynch mob happening going on and there's a dead guy walking around middle america welcome to 1993 yeah and, oh, and in that scene as well when um when uh she brings the the kid home and johnny's like i can't eat a kid and he puts him in the cupboard and then the dad answers the door and uh, it's it's big chuck and he goes oh i heard your son died the other day he's like yes we're very sorry for that but he killed and ate my son today and we've come to kill him. <laughs> and then like the dad just like turns around and goes, oh, uh, honey, there's uh, some angry men with guns. And he turns around and they're in the house. It's just that, that's just, it's just brilliant comedy timing. It's like, you know, there's men here to kill your son. They've got the guns in the hand and you've let them in the house. And then they're like, oh yeah, we're sorry for your loss. And then the little kid comes out and he's like, hello, little Chuck. Little Chuck, <laughs> and then she pulls out a shotgun. So it's you know it's that it's that mother's instinct of feeding your child or protecting your child, even though your child's a human eating zombie. It's uh, but all done with matter of factly, like you said, all done matter of factly. But no, they were brilliant. I thought they were fantastic throughout the whole film. Oh yeah, I, I think it was the line of "You're not going to shoot me." I think I might. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, since since we're talking about Big Chuck here, let's talk about Paul Dooley as as Big Chuck. Um, definitely, again, kind of like that the allegory for the unaccepting, almost um, prejudiced kind of character that you might find in a small town. You know, and, mm-hmm. and I'm not I'm not trying to sit there and paint a paint a broad stroke with this, but I'm sure everyone knows someone kind of like Big Chuck. But how was Paul Dooley? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. Stereotypes are used to get points across. But how was Paul Dooley in this role for you? Well, I actually think that he was he was well, first of all, his character was great, but actually I thought he was a reasonable person. I think he is a reasonable person. Uh, the only reason why he was annoyed is because his son died and was eaten. That's the only reason why he was angry. But, like, you could imagine, for instance, that if Johnny came home and said to his mom and dad, oh, you know, I'm getting picked on at school by by Chuck, and his parents went to Big Chuck and said, you know, your kid's picking on my kid, he'd probably go, look, I'll deal with it. You know, I'll sort it out, not like, get off my land or I'll shoot you. And he seemed a quite a reasonable person until his son was killed. And he found out that the zombie was going to eat his other child as well. Even though he wasn't, he's, you know, he's well within his rights to go, hang on a minute. <laughs> Why is my other son in the human eating zombie person's house? Uh, so, yeah, so I thought he was, I thought he was a great character. I thought he was a great character. He had good comedy uh, relief. And I think... The um the names that they called Missy, uh, zombie slut, whore of the dead, <laughs> <laughs> him and his friends. I just thought, yeah, just it was really, yeah. I thought he, I thought it was great. Yeah, he did really well. And the funny thing too is that it's not that he's seemingly upset that his son accidentally killed himself because let's be honest, Chuck is the kind of idiot that would probably kill himself by accidentally, you know, chopping his head with an axe. Makes sense. 
I think it's the fact that Johnny started to eat him that it's like, okay, my son's an idiot, but did you have to actually eat my son? Uh, I think that's where, where the line kind of got crossed, which is kind of funny when you put it into perspective. Well, the one thing that did very well um, is <clears throat> even though it's a misunderstanding, because I say you killed and ate my son, he didn't kill him. We know he didn't kill him, but there was no witnesses there to actually see that. So technically he would still be classed as killing someone because there's no one there to, and the fact they hit him afterwards kind of just adds to that a little bit, doesn't it? You know what I mean? It's like, I didn't rob the bank, but I've got the money from the bank in my house. So you can put two and two together. Well, you probably did rob the bank then, didn't you really? Even though, even if you just found the money in the street, kind of, I can tie you to that robbery. So I can tie you to the murder because you wet the geyser afterwards and there was no one there to witness it. So what else should we think? Um, and I can't ask for trial of thought there, um, but <laughs> sorry, I do apologise. Uh, but no, um, but you know, he was he was very reasonable with the fact that uh, that you've killed and him, and we're gonna let you know that we're gonna kill him. And they actually shoot him in the house, and he's like, "What are you doing? <laughs> I'm dead already." <laughs> At least it didn't go on and on. It's like. Don't shoot him again. It's not going to work. It was just wasting your bullets there. But the, I think the interesting thing, too, is that with little Chuck, well, not little, little Chuck, not the kid, but with Chuck, uh, as played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, he pl- he plays Chuck in a way that kind of makes Big Chuck's aloofness almost kind of make sense. Because, A, it was really weird to see Philip Seymour Hoffman in this kind of role because you don't expect him to play, you know, the the monosyllabic idiot that just follows around the, you know, the quarterback like a puppy dog here. But it kind of makes sense when you take a look at Paul Dooley and you take a look at Philip Seymour Hoffman in this and say, no, no, I could see them as father and son in this, at least with these characters. Oh, 100%. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that this was, um, this was his first film, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, that is. Um, and I, I think he's probably had a look at that script and went, and probably just like you said, he was probably, the, the character was just the normal, you know, the normal kind of sidekick to, you know, the, um, the posh boy at school, uh, so to speak. But he's going, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to turn the dial up to 11 now. Yeah. I'm going to have some fun with it and see what they say. And they probably went, yes, just do what you want, mate. No one knows who you are. <laughs> the film's not going to go anywhere. Just do whatever you like. And he was probably one of the, he, he's one of the more memorable. He's much more memorable than what book was. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the record, by the way, Philip Seymour Hoffman's first ever movie was a movie called Triple Bogey on a Par 5 Hole. Uh, but even before Ooh. even before this, he was also in Scent of a Woman. So, and and, and Leap of Faith. So there are movies. I do uh, like Leap of Faith. Yeah, movies prior to this for Philip Seymour Hoffman. But I, I think the problem with him, with his character, and it's the same problem I have with Matthew Fox's character as Buck, is that we didn't really get to know Buck and Chuck as much as we should have for me to dislike them. The thing with Buck yes. is that he's just there and we we know that we're not supposed to like Buck because he's getting in the way of Johnny getting together with Missy. But the thing is, we don't get to see a level of their, not cruelty, but just we need a reason for them to be, or we need them to prove that they are an asshole so we can think, oh, okay, cool, the asshole got an axe to the head. That makes me feel better as a moviegoer. Um, 
we want it, we well, need to hate Buck and Chuck more. Well, the film's only about an hour and 30 minutes long anyway, so you, you haven't really got maybe the time to expand on that, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you kind of, you, you've, I think the first, like the kind of the, basically they say, oh, like Missy's broke up with Buck. So we know that straight away. And then there's the big band and he comes and he's like, I'm sorry, my car broke down, my battery and down. I had to walk 20 miles, but he's making excuses why you didn't turn up to me. So, you know, he's a, he was doing something else and he's a bit of a knobhead anyway. And this is lovely. So why is he treating this lovely girl like a rah? And then because that's where, um, that's where Johnny was going to make his move. Chuck sees him looking and he just leans up against the, because what are you looking at? dirtbag and so you kind of get the idea that they're both a bit horrible already but what i liked about that that they didn't go into it that they didn't go into it because normally you get that you know you get the 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 trip someone over in the canteen and laugh or they it didn't need that it doesn't need it didn't need it it stepped away from the normal tropes of what you would get because what you get in in the long run is a town full of people who are just going, oh, there's the dead kid, like it's normal. You're not getting the the, the traditional high school meanness. Mm-hmm. You're getting a story away from that. You don't need all those bits. Austin Pendleton, who, of course, played the doctor in this, that eventually discovered a way to reverse the aging process by using parts of... Um, or at least skin samples from Johnny post, you know, coming back from the dead and then wants to basically chop him up so he can, you know, create an elixir of youth, if you will. How was Austin Pendleton for you? Well, um, I first remember Austin Pendleton from uh, Short Circuit where he played the scientist. So he was kind of back in that kind of role again, but he was brilliant. Uh, He was brilliant because again, brilliant jokes, just like when um, uh, when Johnny goes with his ear because because uh, Missy had bit his ear off when she was nibbling at him, and he just picks up and goes hello hello, just h- hilarious. It's just really it's just funny stuff, um, and he's actually really good up until the point where his assistant goes, you know, we can make like he's literally he's he's created something that no one's ever created. He's turned the chicken into an egg. He is he has reversed the aging process. He is groundbreaking. We all know his name forevermore now because of what he's done. And she and he goes, I want to save a young man's life. It's every doctor's dream. And she goes, Do you know how much money you're gonna make from this? And he's like, No, I can't. I just can't. And she's going, like, millions. Maybe I can. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously when the when when the townsfolk come, which was very Dracula-esque. I thought like like him looking out from high at the mob with the flaming torches and the big battering ram. You know, it was very kind of that kind of Dracula-esque kind of picture shot. And it's like, right, no time for anesthetic. I need all of your body now <laughs> before they get to you. I want you before they get to you. But um, I didn't dis... And again, it's one of those where a film like this could make you dislike the doctor. The doctor's got an evil plan. He didn't have an evil plan. He was trying to do the best he could. And then went, oh, you know what? I could make a lot of money this way. So I'm just going to have to chop you up, Charlie. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that as we're going through some of these characters and how they, they're all very matter of fact through the whole thing. It reminds me a little bit of the movie, the dead don't die. 
uh, recently starring Bill, uh, Bill Murray and Adam Driver and Chloe ah. Sevigny. And it's a quirky film. And I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't like it in that sense because it wasn't played more for, you know, it wasn't played overtly as a parody. Whereas this one, I think, had the a movie like The Dead Don't Die actually taking some cues from this film i think that movie would have fared better because this film seems to have its its parody and its its analogies on lockdown well that's this is the reason why i like this film so much because it kind of created a sub-genre of movies which i like to call zomcom uh and i think other than perhaps warm bodies and i buried my ex there aren't many films within that kind of Zomcom genre because there just isn't now whether because no one's interested is a different kettle of fish but um yeah it's um i think if you uh if you look at like how do you make zombies funny well you got you got weekend at bernie's but bernie's not a zombie he's just dead uh which that was funny uh that was a funny film because you're in a situation the situation you're in and and and, and this again has probably taken it to uh, the next level and gone, well, what if Bernie actually came back as a zombie? Because I think in number two, I think in Weekend of Bernie's two, he kind of did, didn't he? he got voodooed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he got uh, he got a voodoo spell cast on him and he came back or he was at least animated for a short period of time, was dancing and doing the doing the uh, the conga or whatever he was doing. What was that in the first film? I'm not quite sure. I can't remember. Those two films get mixed up a little. No, I think it was the second one, wasn't it? But no, that's why I like this film so much because it is, it's kind of like it's made its own niche. And that's what I try and explain to people. It's a Zomcom. And I, I remember telling her, I was, uh, I had to go to Belgium for work once and I was telling a friend about the film and the Belgian bloke in front, he hadn't said a word of English the whole time. And I said Zomcom and he just turned around and went, Zomcom? as <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I i've coined a new phrase well and there's the thing like you take a look at a series like i zombie and you you've taken your typical kind of genre the procedural where you know every week it's a it's a crime of the week kind of thing and many shows have done it before but this time it's with the zombie you know trying to help solve the crimes and it's kind of like watching lucifer but this it's the devil who's actually helping mm. solve the crimes it's still a procedural but it's got that little twist to it. This is very much like that late 80s, early 90s rom-com, but it's got a zombie at the center of it. And, and yeah, yeah, I think I think, I think, think if this was made in 1996 and Tom Hanks was the lead, it would still be known now as one of the best comedies ever made. I truly believe that. I, I think there's one of the things too, is that despite some of the names that are in this film and what they eventually went on to do, Prior to this, I think like some of the biggest names in here were like Cloris Leachman, who played like the the zombie expert. You know, like you don't have mm-hmm. big names, and even though you have a big studio behind you with Walt Disney Studios, you don't have the namers on the bill in order to be able to sell it. No, and I think I think they probably didn't put very much into the marketing. In all fairness, they they couldn't have. Um, but I also think it was that that time it was that period of time where vhs not dvd of course but vhs home video that was the big thing and there was a lot of studios like um like uh, canon who would make all their money on video they, they might have a short cinematic release which was their marketing they wouldn't spend 10 million on marketing they'd put the film in the cinema and then word of mouth would get it through on 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 video 
from Blockbuster. Or that that's where they'd make all their money. And I know there isn't any uh, international sales and probably because, again, actually the the video that I got, uh, the, the way I come across it, there was my, a friend of mine, his neighbour had died and he had like a shed full of videos and the the lady had given them all to my mate. And my mate said, just come around and just help yourself. And, I, and this was one I picked up and I was like, oh, I'll watch it. And it actually had the... Um, it was like not for resale it had the barcode on the bottom. So obviously this was a video that was sending out to distributors to, to, um, you know, to get them interested in the film. Uh, but like, just like you said, then about the, um, about the weekend release, actually my, in my top five, this is my number one favorite film of all time. Uh, my number five is the fugitive. So two of my top five films came out the same week in 1993, <laughs> but it was, but 93 was a good year for movies. Yeah. It was a good year. I mean, the other thing too, that, that I'm, I'm looking at this and thinking, A, it was put out by Walt Disney Studios. So clearly Disney has the rights to it, but it's not on Disney plus. So I, I think there's a missed opportunity because this is the kind of film that really there's, I think they, they dropped like one S word in here. And I think that's about it. Um, you, you don't really, it's, it's the very start. Unfortunately, Jason, uh, there's like, um, I haven't got the only thing, cause I've got, I've got two 11 year old girls and a seven year old boy. The only thing I don't like them watching is kind of anything of a, not, not of a sexual nature, but like, I mean, swearing, action, violence, death, no problem with that. But when it comes to the, like trying to explain, you know, or like if there's a sex scene, so no sex scenes. And if something's a little bit racy, it's like, uh, so the very start of the film kind of kills it for me because he's having the sexual fantasy at the very start. <laughs> and it's like, uh, can't, what, can't let my kids watch this. So probably that is probably what's holding it back from maybe being on Disney plus perhaps, or the fact that they don't even know they've got it. <laughs> well, hey, Disney Plus. Uh, there's a bunch of people who would probably really enjoy this film, so maybe put it on your streaming service. Just you it's know. got Matthew McConaughey and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and put it on your bloody streaming channel. It almost Renee Zellweger. Um, one of the uh, other characters I wanted to bring up here before we get into a couple of other notes here is Bob Dishy, who played uh, Murray the Grave Digger. Again, this could have been one of those characters that was tropey and very creepy and dirty and whatnot because he obviously works in a grave. He just deals with the dead people. But again, he fits the feel of the rest of the town in that, yeah, no, it's another zombie coming out of the grave. It kind of happens and just deal with it matter of factly. But how was Bob Dishy? Uh, yeah, well, he was obviously, he was in it for a short period of time, uh, but he kind of acted as the person that moved act one onto act two and then finished off act three. So he was the cornerstone really, because he was the, the int- don't go out there because you you, know, you have to live here forever now, because I've seen this before. So you can't go out and, oh, well, don't say I didn't warn you. And then when he comes back, like, you know, there's only one person that can help you. And that's the woman whose husband come back and da, da, da. And then, so he moved, that's where he starts to have to eat people, um, which, Sounds creepy in his way, but obviously he's got the urge. So it's not that creepy because it's not like, oh, God, I'm, I'm absolutely, well, because he says, I'm not going to eat people. Are you mad? But actually he's got the urge to eat people. So it's not too disgusting, so to speak. If you've got the urge, to, if you're a bird, you've got an urge to eat a worm, ain't you? You're a human. You're not eating a worm because it's disgusting. So, but then obviously at the end, when the townsfolk are trying to kill him and his parents trying to, uh, I mean, again, his mum pulls out a bloody desert eagle 
or whatever, a fucking Magnum 50 Colt bully gun and pulls it on everyone. And he diffuses that situation and just calms the whole town down and moves the film onto the very end. So he, he was really, even though he probably had, what, seven lines in the whole film, he was the cornerstone of the whole, of the whole film. There's one aspect, and, and I want to make it very clear. I liked this film. I had a good time with this film. It was a fun film. But there is an absolute dangling thread that this film left. And I'm just like, is no one going to bring this up? Because throughout the film, it's implied that zombies have happened before. You know, so the gravedigger says, you know, I don't think we've had someone come out of the grave for about 15 years. When the reporter is doing her report with the with the cop and all that, um, she's like, you know, is there a zombie walking around again? Like, you know, there was that problem like years ago. There's a backstory implied that would help explain, I think, why everyone is so freakingly matter of fact. Like, there's... Like, you look at J.O. Sanders, who was Missy's dad in this. Like, your daughter's making out with a zombie, and you're just pissed <laughs> off because she's not going to the prom with Buck. That's your problem with this? Like, everyone is so, like, deals with this like it happens every other day, and it's not explained why. Is there something special about this town? It's just, like, implied, okay, he just walked out of the ground because he wanted to go to the prom with Missy. Like, that's... That's a day it ends in Y in this town here. Is does the the lack of that explanation, or at least the expansion on that backstory, take away from the movie for you? Uh, no, because it's it's it, now you brought it up. I'm going to think about it, but um, it's kind of again like everything else that might have to have five or ten minutes dedicated to it. It doesn't because it goes to the it goes to the woman's house and she's like, Yeah, my husband came back from the dead. It's unresolved issues. You've got to sort out your issues and then you can carry on. Okay. Fair enough. Done. Dealt with. And maybe that's why everyone in the town isn't bothered because they've seen a zombie before. And they were freaked. Maybe they were scared the first time and then the second time it's like, oh okay, well the first time it happened it wasn't too bad because he did what he had to do and then he was back dead so we just got to let the kid do what he needs to do and then he's back dead yeah i mean we're all good and we can carry on your town has a zombie expert there has to be a reason why your town has a damn zombie expert give me something (laughs) what's in the water yeah no but you don't but again jason you don't need it do you because it's the movie is very fast-paced so you don't need it it's not if it was if it was a six-part tv show you'd need a whole episode dedicated to the backstory but you don't it just it, it it moves very quickly, very nicely. And before you know it, it's the end of the film. Um, now it's not necessary to know the ins and outs of what happened before, uh, unless uh, me and you're going to pitch a prequel, perhaps. I mean, there's now if you had, t- I'm so glad you mentioned this because it's like you stole my notes. Um, <laughs> if you were to make a prequel to this and you said it in the fifties and you called it again something like my boyfriend's back or something like that or um something along those lines and you set that up again set it in the 50s i think it works better i think rather than a prequel you just re you know, if you remade it and set it in the 50s that's pretty cool and, and it's something you mentioned earlier on uh with the back to the future reference there's a big back to the future reference in the film where um danny zorn's character uh punches matthew fox's character and he 
knocks him out at the prom because that's what George does to Biff in Back to the Future. So I think that was a bit of a a bit of a shout out to uh, the Back to the Future bit because even Danny couldn't believe it himself. He was like, oh, just looks at his fist and goes, wow. I, I, I will say I do love the fact that the theme of the prom was apparently heaven. So it, I'm glad they didn't expand on that and have like Missy be part of the, you know, the prom committee kind of thing. Because that was a, a fast, it was a fun reveal that I'm glad we kind of got sprung with rather than build it up like, you know, and be didactic about it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I, and I think that it, it could have just been an afterthought to put, like, what are we going to call the prom? Let's call it heaven. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, dude, you know what time it is. It is time. Talk to me. It is time to name your MVP. So, who is your MVP of 1993's My Boyfriend's Back? Oh, it's right. It's 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 difficult. Um, but I will go with the mom. Um, yeah, I'll go with. Uh, it's not. I always in my head. I always think Mary Beth Hurt, and it's not Mary Beth Hurt at it, all. Is it? it is Mary <laughs> Beth Hurt, actually. Oh, it is Mary. Sorry, uh, I always get I always get mixed up with um, uh, Diane Weist, and that's because obviously um, uh, Edward Herman's in um, Lost Boys. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, yeah. you don't really have to justify Mary Beth Hurt being your MVP. Because Mary Beth Hurt is my MVP of this oh. film. It's one of Jackals. those things where she's that that character that's just so bubbly and fun, as cute as hell in this. Like the fact that she's like, you know, oh my boy's feeling kind of hungry. I'm gonna go get him a kid to eat. Uh, like it's just <laughs> those, those little things, and it's just again, it's just so matter of fact that I again, I wish a movie like The Dead Don't Die, which I was not the biggest fan of took a few cues from this because I think this film and the way it approached that kind of comedic matter of fact style parody could be a template for other films. And I think the critics definitely got it wrong on this one. Philip, thank you so much for introducing me to this film because this was the first time I had ever seen this film and now I'm sold on it. Uh, Oh, excellent. Before we go though, please let our listeners know about the adapted to screen podcast, where they can find it and where they can find you out there on the interwebs. Oh yeah. Okay. So for those of you uh, who don't know, um, I've got a podcast called, called the Adapted Screen Podcast, where we read a book or a short story and we watch the adapted movie and we discuss the differences. Uh, sometimes we have guests and sometimes we don't. We've had some really good guests, actually. We've had um, we've had Simon Bamford, who was in Hellraiser. We've had Scott Caporo, who was in Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, recently, we had Ducky Brimson, uh, who wrote both the novel Top Boy and... Uh, sorry, Top Dog, uh, uh, Top Boy, yeah, Top Boy, and the movie Top Boy as well. Um, he also wrote Green Street. I don't know if you're familiar with Green Street at all, Jason, um, the one with Elijah Wooding when he played uh, a football hooligan. I think, is that is that the one that's got Danny Dickey in it? Or, or I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, whoever went on. Danny to, Dyer, you mean. That's the guy. The guy, <laughs> the guy who went on to host the show uh, Football Factories. Yeah, no, uh, that's no. You're you're mistaking that film with Football Factory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, no. Which is which is funny because you said Danny Dicchio, and Danny Dicchio is actually a former professional footballer uh, who I think retired over in America, and he was playing for I think he was playing for is it like um, Ontario Timber I think, 
uh, I think or one of the it was someone like someone like that anyway. See, it's it's all soccer related at this point. Yeah, no. Uh, so yeah, so that's uh, so you can find us on uh, you can find us on Good Pods. You can find us on Spotify. Basically, any channel that you get your podcast from, you just type in Adapted to Screen, and we're also on Twitter as well at Adapted to Screen. Excellent. And for the record, Danny Dicchio apparently is the assistant manager for Sacramento Republican. But prior to that, he was working with Toronto FC. So, you know, in case you uh-huh. in case you wanted to come to, you know, um, a movie podcast to get your soccer information, here we go. I knew he was playing somewhere in Canada. Uh, I mean, he's got to be he's got to be in his fifties now in, in his England uh, in his England playing career or English playing career. He played. Uh, he was most famous for playing for Queens Park Rangers. Ah, there you go. See, you you come to the, it's not that bad for the movie news. You get <laughs> schooled on soccer. There we go. You get everything else. Yes, <laughs> indeed. All right, Phelps, thank you so much. And to you, our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you guys know the drill. If there's a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or there is no way in heck or even in the afterlife that we can find anything good to say about it hit us up on social media at notthatbadcast or go to our website at notthatbadcast.com while you're there you can check out our other shows as well as our guest appearances page where you can actually hear me on the Adapted to Scream podcast talking about the exact talking about the circle Uh, until next time Phil thank you so much listeners you guys are awesome this is It's Not That Bad take care It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.